Welcome to the GRF On The Go podcast. The subject matter experts at GRF CPAs and Advisors created this podcast to offer insights on current topics, as well as new ideas and best practices that your team can apply today. This podcast was originally presented as a live webinar. CPE information provided during the podcast is no longer valid, but if you're interested in watching the video version of this session or accessing the slide deck, visit our website at grfcpa.com forward slash events. Enjoy the episode and remember to subscribe for future content. Looks like a number of people joining is starting to slow down. Um, so just wanted to welcome everyone to um, today's webinar. Um, this is part three of our series, how to set up a world-class whistleblower program. My name is Tom Brown, and I'm a senior analyst in our risk advisory department here at GRF. Um, we are an audit and advisory firm headquartered in Washington, D.C. metro region. Um, really work worldwide servicing different areas. Um, and today we are joined by Mac Lillard and Kristen Ocampo at GRF, who I'll let briefly introduce themselves now before we jump into the content. All right. Thanks a lot, Tom. As Tom's mentioned, I'm Mac Lillard, Senior Manager with GRF CPAs and Advisors. Um, I started at GRF about 10 years ago in our external audit practice, so a CPA by trade, and then um, my own personal interest really steered me in the direction of fraud and forensic auditing. Uh, that really is my my passion area, uh, my primary area of emphasis within the risk and advisory services department. So constantly attending different trainings, trying to stay abreast of best practices, um, and really excited to, to talk through the investigation process. Hope everybody joined us or at least um, went back and looked at the recordings for parts one and two, because we are going to be building on some of that knowledge and that information. Uh, but thank you, everyone, for, for joining us today. Look forward to getting into it. But I'll turn things over to, to Kristen. Thanks, Mac. Uh, I'm Kristen Ocampo. I'm a supervisor um, at PRF's Risk and Advisory Services. I also come from a CPA background performing internal control and financial statement audits, um, which ultimately led to performing fraud risk assessments and then becoming a certified fraud examiner and working on investigations. I'm excited to be part of the final webinar in this series. Um, like Max said, I think the information will build on the topics from the previous two presentations. And we also wanted to mention, um, I'm sure there are a uh, participants on the call who have experience conducting investigations. So as we go through the presentation, feel free to add in the chat anything that your organization does or that you've seen done that has worked well, um, and we can read those out uh, to the group. So back to you, Mac. Cool, thanks, Kristen. And just a little bit more about GRF. As Tom mentioned, we are a, a full service accounting and advisory firm. We initially got our start doing traditional audit and tax work. Um, I think we're in our 42nd or 43rd year of operations. Um, and we really started expanding our service areas into technology, um, whether that be cybersecurity or technology implementations, enterprise risk management internal audit, fraud forensics, and cybersecurity. Um, you know, again, we are really always trying to stay on top of the biggest risks facing our clients, um, the majority of our clients are in the nonprofit and INGO space. However, we do service 
all sorts of different industries. Uh, and again, we try to stay on top of the different risks, different industry best practices, um, you know, what's keeping our clients up at night. So if you have any other concerns, um, anything that you're looking for, additional resources or content over something you'd like us to put together a webinar over, please feel free to reach out to us directly. Also, please feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Keep the conversation going after this webinar. Reach out to us directly with any questions, comments, concerns, feedback. We'd love to hear it. Uh, but again, thank you all for being here today. With that, we'll go ahead and just jump into our first polling question. So how's everybody doing in sticking with their New Year's resolutions? Is everybody still going strong? You already faltered, give it up, pushing that into 2025, or what resolutions am I talking about? All right. Thank you, Tom. Looks like we got a nice split between going strong and, and what resolutions. Uh, Good, good to see a lot of you are, are still going strong. I always end up, you know, my resolution, my resolution is to eat better and exercise more. So I took that first step and finally throwing away the last like three handfuls of candy I had sitting around from Halloween. So I think that's a, a step in the right direction. I'll count myself as still going strong. But with that, let's go ahead and get into the material. Um, so similar to our last webinar we did just want to go through a quick recap of the the first two webinars in this three-part series uh, again if you hadn't had it if you didn't have the chance to uh, join us live and if you hadn't had the chance to review the the recordings please feel free to visit our website to look at those um, but again we'll provide a quick little recap here so just looking at the current landscape the, specifically the current fraud landscape um, lots of things are changing constantly changing specifically around information technology and business processes um, organizations committed to fraud prevention detection you know need to address all of these different risks that are coming from um, digital transformation and through these changing in business processes um, the new operating environment that everyone is is currently Living, living and working in. Um, so this is we're going to try to focus on um, fraud from a couple different perspectives. Really focusing on the financial statement fraud, but as as it relates to whistleblower investigations and whistleblower allegations, obviously these do not always re uh, revolve around fraud or fraudulent activity. You know, there's also other other types of whistleblower allegations regarding an equal employment opportunity, um, safety and uh, workplace environment items. So again, we're going to try to expand on all of these, but really focusing on financial statement fraud. Um, so some of these changes in frameworks and regulations really influence some of these new best practices um, and a lot of the information that we're going to try to communicate to everybody today. Uh, so just to touch on a few of those, if anybody is familiar with the Institute of Internal Auditors, their three lines model, this actually changed during COVID um, around 2020 went from the three lines of defense model to just the three lines model because it's important that we're not just on defense, that we are actually on offense. Um, so this changed up sort of the presentation of those three lines and really focuses on the level of communication and the collaboration between the board of directors, management, and the internal audit department. Um, under the three lines model of the, or the three lines of defense model, the old model, um, risk management was kind of put into its own silo. It was looked at as its own department. Um, but really what the new three lines model um, tried to emphasize was just the importance of enterprise risk management, really 
um, trickling down to all of the employees within the organization. You may have a head of ERM or a director of risk management, uh, but we like to say enterprise risk management, ERM, everyone is a risk manager. Everyone should be kind of staying on top of the risks to their department, their business function. Um, and this should really be a collaborative effort as opposed to just delegating this to, to one individual. And if anybody, again, was familiar with the old three lines model, you notice that there were the lines of communication were going all up to the board of directors from management, from internal audit, from those key business processes, all going upwards. Um, and another one of those key changes was that now those communication arrows are going in both directions. It's it's extremely important for information to flow in both directions, both from internal audit to management, as well as internal audit to the board of directors and from the board down to management and the internal audit department uh, to, again, make sure that everyone is, is on the same page within the organization. That, again, this is a collaborative effort to implementing risk management activities to address the most strategic risks to the organization's strategic plan and their uh, objectives and initiatives. There is also the COSO internal framework. Uh, specific to fraud risk management that was released in the past few years. Uh, so if anybody's familiar with that, that COSO model or the CRIME acronym, um, which is your control activities, your risk assessment, information and communication, monitoring activities, and then the existing, or sorry, existing control activities. And that C is the control environment. I don't hear too many people use that Prime acronym anymore. Um, that was kind of popular, I guess, when I was going through my my CPA exam courses. Um, but I guess maybe using the crime acronym when referring to fraud risk management is is kind of uh, ironic. So maybe that's why they've done away with it. But it's always stuck with me and helped me remember uh, that acronym. So again, the COSO fraud risk management framework is really an application of the overall COSO framework, but focusing specifically on fraud controls, the principles that go into preventative, detective, and corrective controls related to fraud and the, the risks facing your organization. In our first, I believe our first webinar, we also talked a little bit about the new European Union whistleblower directive, uh, which really establishes a timelines for response and communication uh, when receiving a whistleblower allegation, and that it also emphasizes the importance of non-retaliation clauses and having a defined process for addressing non-retaliation at your organization. Um, so again, anybody who's doing work in the European Union or working with European Union partners, uh, this is very important because this may actually apply to you. And as we kind of saw with GDPR back in, uh, I guess, 2018 when that was, that was released, General Data Protection Regulation. Um, we do see something similar to the EU whistleblower directive becoming legislation or regulation uh, within the US, as we saw again with GDPR, that slowly became common practice and actually got written into legislation for different states, whether it be the, the California Consumer Privacy Act or the Virginia uh, Privacy Act that went into effect in 2023. We do typically see um, the U.S. kind of following suit with what the EU defines. So definitely uh, would recommend kind of familiarize, familiarizing yourself with that and incorporating some of those practices into your organization's practices, even if it's not necessarily applicable to you. Um, again, a lot of really good information in there. We do uh, foresee some of that, um, again, coming into uh, effect or into legislation within the, the U.S., 
And then there's just general ESG, which isn't necessarily a particular framework or, or piece of legislation, but is more so, I guess, a, a general concept. Um, so the environmental and social aspects of that whistleblower complaints can be received um, in, in regards to certain um, concerns related to the environment or to certain social issues. Uh, so it's, again, important to stay on the top issues that are could impact your organization. But whistleblower, whistleblower programs really do fall into the the G of ESG or the governance practices, having a defined and a strong whistleblower program demonstrates strong corporate governance and a commitment to holding the organization and its employees accountable for any potentially nefarious or, or unethical activity. And why is this all important? Well, one, there's, there's financial losses that can be um, consequential for anybody who might be undergoing financial fraud. There's significant risk to operations, and then there's significant risk to the organization's reputation. Even small whistleblower complaints that are mishandled or leaked or confidentiality is breached could result in irreparable damage to the organization's reputation. Um, and should a whistleblower allegation not be followed up on and a particular issue kind of manifest and, and become a larger issue, again, that could result in uh, significant financial or reputational concerns for the organization. So again, all of this really just emphasizes the importance of having a, a clearly defined and a strong whistleblower program in place. So just thinking about fraud deterrence now and in the future, deterrence is one of the most important elements of, of any whistleblower program. Um, just having a whistleblower program itself actually serves as a deterrent to anyone who might be considering um, committing any kind of fraud or, or performing any sort of unethical act. Again, it demonstrates a strong commitment from governance to, to establish that no tolerance policy against fraud. Um, demonstrate, you know, if, if the organization is performing periodic fraud risk assessments and has the appropriate preventative and detective controls and that the employees are aware of these different practices, again, that's just going to serve as more of a deterrent for anybody who may be considering something. If they know that somebody is keeping a close eye, if they know that whistleblower allegations are going to be followed up on in a timely manner, that they are going to be conducted thoroughly and that the organization will take a no tolerance stance and kind of pursue any sort of legal action or disciplinary action associated with any of these whistle or uh, substantiated whistleblower allegations. Again, all of this is going to serve to as a deterrent for anybody who may even be considering um, committing any kind of fraud or, or acting unethically in any way. So again, as I mentioned, we are really going to be focusing on kind of financial statement fraud um, throughout our investigation process. But Whistleblower programs go way beyond fraud. There are a number of different types of allegations or complaints that could be made through the whistleblower program that aren't related to financial statement fraud. Um, so here are just a handful of examples of that workplace safety violations um, that create hazardous conditions or endanger employees' well-being. Environmental protection, again, looking back at ESG, some of those environmental concerns over whether or not somebody's accurately reporting CO2 emissions or their use of fossil fuels or properly using their um, their credits related to, uh, to their environmental protection. Um, looking at safety and quality of, of products, if your organization does manufacture products or just the programs that you administer, making sure that you are not endangering the general public or the population that you are trying to serve with your programmatic activities academic misconduct for anybody who's involved with institutions of higher education, and then equal equal, opportun 
Equal Employment Opportunity or EEO. Sorry, I see that those words are switched right there. Um, but any any kind of unfair treatment of employees based on race, color, religion, sex, or any any other um, qualities like that, as well as workplace harassment, culture issues, morale issues, or any other unethical behavior um, could also be reported through your whistleblower program. So again, it's important not to just focus on financial fraud, but also have a, a program or a process in place to address any of these other uh, potential allegations that could find their way into the whistleblower platform or program. So we talked a bit about where to start, just performing a baseline assessment of your policies, procedures from human resources, legal, the anti-fraud program, and the uh, financial operations. Um, so some of the baseline policies that we talked about were the code of conduct, which is typically embedded in the employee handbook and required to be signed and attested to on an annual basis that all employees know and understand their rights and responsibilities for uh, appropriate conduct within the workplace. The whistleblower policy itself that we're going to expand on uh, specific to the investigation process. I know Kristen's going to go through that in detail, so I'm not going to spend too much time on that right now. And then the conflict of interest policy also supports the whistleblower policy, um, just making sure that any individuals are properly declaring any potential conflicts of interest, uh, making sure that those are documented and that mitigating controls are put in place whenever necessary. Having the appropriate accounting and financial policies that are comprehensive over all of the financial operations and reviewed, updated as necessary and approved on an annual basis. And then also an information security policy this is a growing area. Um, this is something that we've seen within a lot of our clients that maybe there are informal practices in place, um, but they lack a, a formal information security policy or they rely on a managed service provider or an outside consultant's information security practices. Again, defining the practices within your organization, whether you're leveraging internal personnel or external consultants, managed service providers is really important to document any controls for which the organization is responsible or any relevant third parties are responsible. Um, so again, a lot of times um, our clients will say that, you know, this isn't applicable to us. We, we leverage it. An outside provider for all things IT, it's still important to have an information security policy that covers things like access rights, incident response plan, how you're backing up and storing your data to make sure that it is available um, and, and protected at all times. Again, just diving into the whistleblower policy itself, we kind of talked about some of the elements of that, really just going through um, the, the introduction, the scope of who this applies to, defining the um, whistleblower process itself, any what, what the organization defines as wrongdoing, the reporting channels, uh, as well as the reporting process. And when we're talking about this reporting process initially, how the, the initial allegation is received and handled. And then there's also the reporting process on the back end as to once an investigation is completed, who and when do we now report the, the findings to? And we will be focusing on that, that back end reporting uh, as part of today's webinar. So again, this is just some of the elements of a whistleblower policy, um, focusing on confidentiality, a statement that confidentiality will be maintained to the fullest extent possible. Non-retaliation is again, another kind of hot topic right now, uh, making sure that the organization, similar to its overall whistleblower process, has a process for actually following up on any claims of retaliation against whistleblowers or would-be whistleblowers. 
and then ultimately defining the investigation process, the step-by-step -step process detailing how management and the board will follow up on complaints. And again, that is really going to be the focus of today's webinar, along with the reporting of the results of that investigation process that I know Kristen is going to expand on a little bit later. We also talked about the whistleblower software online platform, and this is where we really love to hear from uh, other practitioners as to kind of what mechanisms you're using to field your allegations, to manage it from, from end to end, starting with the initial receipt of the complaint all the way through the final reporting. Um, we've, we've done a lot of research over these platforms, and they've, they've really grown in popularity due to just all of the different capabilities that they provide. They're very user-friendly, and they streamline the case management process from end to end, and they make it very easy to grant and restrict access based on need to know so that only the relevant parties who have to have access to documentation or the case file have that level of access and making sure that nobody outside of the investigation team or the investigation process can get access to that. They also have very high levels of security. As you know, there's a lot of sensitive documentation and sensitive material uh, being shared as part of the investigation process, interview notes, um, things that may Cause, cause potential reputational damage or just impact relationships within your company should it be leaked or compromised. Um, and again, these, these platforms are all based off of you know, best practices. So again, they kind of define your, your actual uh, whistleblower process themselves a little bit just through the way that they're set up. So if, if you don't currently have a detailed investigation process, but you're considering using one of these platforms, it's actually almost easier to implement one of these platforms and almost reverse engineer your investigation process by following exactly what you would do within the system. And that will help guide you in, in defining your process um, and setting that up. So again, a lot of value to be gained from using a cloud-based platform, but that is not the, the end-all be-all. Um, there are still plenty of other other mechanisms that you can use to manage your investigations from start to finish and make sure that you're properly protecting all of the information, documentation, and confidentiality associated with that investigation. And this is just, again, kind of uh, expanding a little bit on some of the benefits of using a whistleblower system. Uh, it's a public signal of commitment to integrity and social responsibility. You can provide links to actually file a, a complaint or an allegation within your website. You can provide it um, within any kind of annual reports you're sending out. And again, it just shows that demonstration of that, that zero tolerance policy against fraud and that the organization takes this very seriously um, and that they have a defined process in place. Also just prevents and, and mitigates any kind of liability, whether that's reputational, financial, operational, prevents the mitigation of those financial losses. Also helps to continuously improve on your, on your operations. Um, you know, there may be instances in which it doesn't result in necessarily disciplinary action, but just improvements to the overall system to make sure that there's, there's no confusion um, or that there's no kind of misunderstanding as to the control areas that may lead to, to improper uh, assessments of maybe somebody's activities. Also helps to strengthen the reputation, again, just through that public sign of, of integrity and social responsibility, and overall helps to promote the, the organization's culture within. If I'm, if I'm working for an organization that has a very strong whistleblower policy, takes it very seriously, um, and educates their employees on how to follow or how to submit 
allegations uh, appropriately. And that's going to be a good sign to me that the organization I'm working with, uh, again, is just committed to uh, that zero tolerance policy against fraud or unethical or um, just any sort of nefarious activity. So I don't have too much to recap on the fireside chat as that was a live conversation with Jeffrey Tenenbaum, um, but these are just some of the areas we've discussed. This is just a little high level recap of kind of what we talked about. But if anybody does have any concerns around the legal considerations related to the investigation process or your whistleblower program, would definitely encourage you to go back to our part two, um, our fireside chat with Jeffrey Tenenbaum. He is an invaluable resource uh, within the nonprofit community providing legal expertise across these areas. I learned a ton from him just in that one hour, asking him different questions from myself as well as our clients. And, and I continue to learn from him you know, on a recurring basis. So again, I would definitely recommend um, you take a look at that if you didn't have the chance to join us live or watch that recording. But with that, we can go ahead and jump into our second polling question. So does your organization have a defined policy or process for performing investigations? Right, so that is great to see that most people here have a, a formalized policy. Um, doesn't seem like too many organizations are operating on kind of an informal policy. Um, and then we've got a little bit of unsure and, and performing investigations ad hoc. Well, I'll jump into uh, talk about the investigation process. Um, as Mac mentioned, um, that's really going to be a focus of today's presentation. And in talking about this process, what we'd like to do is focus on those items or tasks that typically fall under the responsibility of the investigation team, um, whether that's the investigators or um, anyone involved in case management. So we've broken down these responsibilities into five steps. Um, first, the intake or receiving of a report from a reporter, so the person reporting the allegation, um, and documenting that allegation on an intake form and in your case log or case management system. Um, like Mac mentioned earlier, this can happen electronically via a whistleblower platform, or the intake could also be done manually on the phone or in person. The second step is analyzing that intake in order to determine whether an investigation is needed. If the answer to that question is yes, then the third step is to actually conduct the investigation. After investigating, prepare and distribute the report of investigation. And then finally, to conduct follow-up if needed and then close the case. On our next slide, um, we'll talk about ways that your organization can support your investigations team through those five steps. And one of those ways is to have a comprehensive set of policies, procedures, and templates that the team can follow. Earlier, uh, Mac mentioned a whistleblower policy, um, which is typically an organization-facing document that all members of your organization will have access to. The Policies and procedures that we're discussing here um, are sort of internal to the investigation team, um, only visible to that team to help them uh, go through the process that they need to, to conduct an investigation. On the next slide, uh, we'll talk about 
elements that your organization could consider including in an investigation policy. So this isn't a comprehensive list, but a starting point for your organization. So again, please feel free to drop in, um, in the, a note in the chat if there's something that your organization um, includes that we haven't listed here. So investigation authority, define who has the authority to investigate cases. We've seen this authority vary from organization to organization. Sometimes it's ethics, compliance, uh, legal, internal audit, and sometimes the investigation authority is dependent on the type of case. So certain cases might be referred to legal, others to compliance. Qualifications and trainings, articulating what types of qualification and trainings your investigators, investigators should have. For example, a certified fraud examiner certification or to be a subject matter expert or certain previous experience. Third-party investigators, um, your document may also want to identify instances where um, having a third-party investigator could be used. For example, in a sensitive case where the in-house investigators may not be able to appear unbiased. And then finally, discipline um, can be helpful to note um, in cases where an allegation is substantiated. Some organizations um, may want to call out who is responsible for determining discipline. Um, in some cases, that's not going to be the investigation team. Um, that could be a separate discipline committee or another group um, of individuals, but it's helpful to call that out in the policy. On the next slide, uh, we'll discuss some elements that you can include in your investigation procedures, such as case management. Um, Items to include under case management would be how you make decisions. So when an allegation is reported, it's helpful to know what steps does your organization need to go through to determine whether or not to investigate an allegation. Case retention. So this is sort of document retention um, of reports that have been made of completed cases. I actually worked on a case last year um, where there was not a good case retention policy. And we started investigating an allegation. And while we were conducting the interviews, we discovered that there were actually previous instances um, of this situation that had occurred over a number of years um, and actually were reported, but the reports were not kept in a centralized location and not retained properly. And so um, we weren't able to have that background information going into the initial investigation. And then assigning investigators um, is another aspect of case management. Um, often uh, these cases are time sensitive. So one practice we've seen work well is to always have two investigators assigned to a case. That way, if um, you know one investigator needs to step away for a family emergency or other situation, the other investigator can push the case forward. Interviews are another element to call out within your investigation procedures. Um, specifically about whether your organization will allow or prohibit reporting of interviews. And for this, you'll need to consult with your legal counsel. Um, in the United States, laws vary from state to state, and of course, laws vary from country to country. Um, but it's good for your investigators to be aware of what they can and cannot do. And then on the next slide, um, a few templates that standardize templates that your investigation team could use to make their process um, more efficient. 
And these might not need to be embedded in your policies and procedures. These could be separate documents. Um, but an intake form, that makes sure that however the intake is done, whether it's through a whistleblower platform or it's in person, that all the necessary information is received in order to make a decision on whether to perform an investigation. And then, of course, um, a template for the report of investigation um, to make sure that the report includes all the elements um, that your organization expects. And we'll talk about reporting um, more later on in the webinar. So I think now we'll move to the, yep, the next slide where Mac will take us through the process to determine um, whether to investigate a report that comes in. Yeah, thank you, Kristen. And yeah, this is just really expanding on uh, some of the information that Kristen just covered, just in regards to the initial steps to be taken once you have actually received an allegation, again, whether it's through a platform or whether it's in person. Um, the first step is always going to be to determine whether or not an investigation is necessary. Um, was the the complaint that was submit a, a formal complaint or did they were they merely bringing something to human resources or to their um, senior business leaders' attention, but they don't have um, plans to actually submit a formal complaint. They're really just notifying. Um, yeah, was it was it formal or was it informal? Is this individual um, submitting this complaint confidentially or anonymously? Does the complaint allege violation of of company policy or of law? Um, what exactly is it that is the the specific concern regarding this this particular complaint or allegation? Is the individual who is being alleged within the allegation still present in some instances, uh, specifically for, for workplace harassment or culture or um, any anything related to just making anybody else uncomfortable or unsafe in the workplace? That may be resolved if an employee leaves. So it's important to follow up with the individual um, submitting the, the complaint if if they are are. Um, okay with with the result that the employee has left you know do they still have concern do they still feel that this warrants additional attention or a formal investigation by management um, should corrective action or, or disciplinary action or legal action be taken even though that individual has left the organization um, and is there demonstrable misconduct meaning can we support this misconduct through corroboration through other interviews or through supporting documentation so again, for the purposes of today's webinar, we are going to assume that an investigation is necessary. Um, so that second step will be, to, like Kristen mentioned, to, to actually plan for the investigation. So here are just kind of four things to consider when beginning your planning process. Uh, what is the problem that we are seeking to address? This decision should not, or sorry, I just wanted to jump back to whether or not determining if an investigation is necessary, because um, this decision should not be left up to one individual. Um, one individual should not be in charge of receiving all whistleblower allegations. There should always be two sets of eyes on something, and and more than one individual should have input into that decision-making process as to whether or not um, you move forward with an investigation. And in some organizations, we'll actually see that there is a committee uh, made up of executive leadership members who actually review the the initial intake form, the complaint itself, and they as a group determine if an investigation is necessary. Um, so again, making sure that not one person has control over this process. Now jumping into the planning process, uh, first understanding 
what's what is the problem at hand? Again, is the complaint an allegation of misconduct? Is it a financial statement fraud, behavioral issues, breach of company policy? Um, again, what what are we trying to um, look into or discover through here? Are we trying to determine if a fraud occurred, if a violation of of company policy or of actual law, common law occurred, um, or if there's inappropriate conduct amongst employees, if there's culture issues, again, documenting, first off, what is the problem that we are seeking to address through our investigation? And then once you've identified what that problem is, what is the desired outcome? Uh, again, are we trying to support financial statement fraud? Are we going to need to do a deep dive into financial processes? Are we need, going to need to meet with multiple individuals across the organization um, to get their input as to intercompany relationships, uh, activity within a critical business process? Um, again, what, what are we seeking to, to get out of this? How are we going to address the problem? And what does that final solution look like at the end of the investigation? Once you've identified those areas, you're going to put together your list of interview questions. Um, and this is extremely important in any whistleblower investigation. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about uh, the interview process itself, because the interviews are really where you perform your initial information gathering. Um, that is going to influence what kind of documentation you request to follow up and corroborate these allegations. Uh, and it's going to provide a lot more information just into the overall problem at hand and allow you to gain input and insight from not only the individual um, submitting the initial complaint, but through other independent parties throughout the organization, as well as the alleged within uh, the complaint. And then once you've defined all of this, is an investigator needed? Um, in certain instances with whistleblower allegations, it may be something that can be handled internally through your human resources department or through your legal counsel. Um, now, if there is a, a fraud at hand, that is the, that's the concern. Um, in many cases, that will result in the need for an investigator to do a deep dive into these financial processes. It's also always good to have an independent evaluator or investigator um, to provide that unbiased and independent view. Uh, again, specifically if there is particular subject matter expertise necessary. Um, so get all of those things figured out and documented, understood, reach out to those investigators during the planning process to make sure that you can properly move forward and address the, the allegation in the most appropriate way possible. So Kristen also talked about case management, so I don't want to repeat too much of her, the information she already covered, but it's really important to design that framework for gathering, organizing, and maintaining the documentation um, this process should also include the consideration of confidentiality. There's a lot of sensitive information being shared during these types of investigations, and data or information leaks can cause irreparable damage to intercompany relationships, to particular employees, to the organization's reputation at large, and it can also damage employee morale, because um, obviously if a, a leak happens, that is going to deter people in the future from um, submitting any sort of whistleblower allegation. If they're not confident that the organization can properly protect their confidentiality um, and their the complaint that they're submitting, it's unlikely that you're going to move forward with submitting any kind of allegation. So I know we've talked a lot about the benefits of, of cloud-based platforms, and some of them are laid out above. But again, you don't have to leverage a cloud-based platform to have a, a robust or a secure case management process. However, there should be other mechanisms in place to manage and store data associated with the complaint. Again, you don't want to run into a situation like Kristen ran into where certain allegations have already been investigated in the past and you don't have that historical context. 
one, it's going to make things more difficult for you as the investigator. Two, it's going to send a bad message to your employees, especially if they were involved in the initial interviews, because they're going to be scratching their head as, you know, we talked about this a year or two ago. How come this is coming up again? How come you don't have the information from the last investigator I, mess, or I, I met with? Um, so again, even without any kind of whistleblower platform, there are ways to protect folders, spreadsheets, particular files within your servers or your cloud day storage platforms uh, to, again, just make sure that you are properly securing all of that data and information to minimize the chance of any sort of leak or breach of confidentiality. So as I mentioned, I wanted to talk a little... Oh, sorry, yeah, please for, jump in. For sorry, for, yeah, just for just a minute, because we had some questions um, come through in the chat that might be related to um, one of your slides about determining when an investigation is necessary. Um, is there a checklist of key points to consider? when making that determination or would it depend on the type of case? I would say the latter. Um, I can definitely do some research and see if there's something I can follow up with the group as to some, some key points um, from some of the trainings that we've received. But yes, I do think that that is really going to, to vary on a case by case basis. You know, for in instances of fraud, it's going to be the materiality of the fraud. Um, again, depending on the allegation, it may not be possible to really follow up on that allegation. It may be difficult to corroborate that information. So there's going to be a lot of different factors uh, that vary from, from case to case. So it is a little tough to define a checklist, but I do think that we could could try to put something or a, a, a basic checklist of points to consider when evaluating whether or not to move forward. Um, and we can circulate that uh, following this. And then just reading the, the second comment that came through, talking to legal counsel and senior management about the desired outcome up front is very significant. If seeking civil suit, criminal conviction, insurance reimbursement to terminate the employee um, can alter the way the investigation is handled. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that point, John. Um, and in some instances, the first step may actually be to reach out to an insurance provider, um, especially if it involves any kind of cybersecurity breach or anything that would fall under your insurance practices, um, filing a police report or reaching out to your insurance provider may actually be the first step in, in being able to recoup some of the lost funds. Uh, and in many instances, the insurance policy will actually cover the costs of an investigation, uh, whether that be a cyber breach or just a regular or not regular, but or any kind of instances of fraud or misconduct. So, yes, thank you very much for jumping in with that point, John. All right, but just jumping back to the interview process, um, when determining what order to interview people, you kind of want to start at the outside or the, or the peripheral of the complaint and kind of work your way into the, the complainant themselves as well as the alleged party. Um, so just looking at a, a very basic example in which you're dealing with one complainant, one alleged party, um, you would really start with the senior most business leader, and assuming that they aren't in any way involved in the allegation. They can provide um, more of an independent view of, of the department or the individuals involved in this. They can speak to the relationship between individuals um, who may be involved in the complaint. They can speak a little bit to company politics, who's friends with who, because again, that may influence the order or the, the individuals with which you meet. If you know that 
certain individuals who are friends with or not friends with the complainant or the alleged, again, that may impact the information you receive. So you may want to structure your interview order a little bit differently to, again, put those people who have close ties to the alleged or to the complainant kind of towards the end of the interview process and try to start with more independent parties throughout the organization. Then again, in this is simple scenario, um, after meeting with the senior most business leader, you would then meet with the complainant to gather more information regarding the complaint itself, processes involved, events, any kind of documentation they have to support the allegation if this hasn't been provided during the initial intake process. Um, and then you would also meet with any witnesses named by the complainant to corroborate their story. It may also be necessary to go back to the senior most business leader to see if, again, they would recommend meeting with anybody because it is possible that, again, depending on company politics, the complainant could just be pointing you in the direction of people that they have very close friendships or relationships with. And again, trying to get the most independent, unbiased, and objective opinions uh, and insight into the organization is, is really important to make sure that the, the investigation is conducted properly. From there, you would meet with the alleged and this, I know it can be an area of confusion because some people, you know, feel that the, the alleged maybe shouldn't be tipped off to the fact that somebody has submitted a complaint, but they obviously need to be pro provided the opportunity to defend themselves. Um, so it is very important to meet with the alleged individuals, uh, as well as any witnesses named by the alleged to support um, any, any of their, their stances or their opinions, um, and then also, again, just provide a, another insight. So in terms of what questions to ask, uh, we kind of we call this the funnel approach, where you start with open-ended questions, and then you work your way into more uh, direct questions. Uh, so just funneling down all of the information. And it's really important to ask different kinds of questions and to avoid certain questions. Um, so in terms of asking repetitive questions, this can be useful to ask immediately following a particular statement to confirm details about what they said, reading it back to them to make sure that you understand and document it correctly. It might also be useful to follow up with the, a, the same question later on in the interview process. You know, once somebody has kind of changed their train of thought, if there's any concerns around, um, you know, potential lying that might be involved, it's good to ask a, the same question later on in the interview process to make sure that those details all line up with one another to make sure that there's nothing that was omit during the initial um, coverage and making sure that, again, that everything aligns and that their story isn't jumping around. And then in terms of some questions to avoid, really focus on avoiding loaded accusatory or compound questions. So a loaded question is a question that already indicates a potential response. So for example, you might have, is it true that you and person X didn't get along? Well, that is already assuming that you know that they didn't get along. So you can change that to say, can you describe your relationship with person X? Changes it to an open-ended question, allows them to provide a response that doesn't already include any kind of indication that you know they didn't get along, or they did get along. Um, and again, just provide or provides the opportunity for a more objective um, and uninfluenced response. There's also accusatory questions. These are very important to avoid because again, you, you anyone is, is innocent until proven guilty, right? So you don't want to offend or accuse anybody of doing anything until it is actually supported and, and corroborated. Um, so again, kind of looking at an, a, an accusatory question that maybe insinuates guilt on the other party, 
an example of a question like that would be, did you know you were breaching company policy when you did ABC? So that could change to, are you aware of the company practice surrounding this or the company policy surrounding this particular practice? Or can you explain your understanding of this policy? And then you back into what actions were taken. And that is how you ultimately determine whether or not there was a violation of, of company policy in that example. And then compound questions. And this is something I, I personally need to be very conscientious about when planning my interviews. Um, and again, this really uh, emphasizes the importance of actually planning out your interviews, documenting all of your questions beforehand um, to make sure that, again, they read appropriately and you're not asking compound questions. The compound question is one in which you're you're asking multiple questions at a time. And sometimes I can get, I, I talk a little fast, I get a little carried away. So if I'm not being conscientious about this, I can definitely be guilty of asking these compound questions. For example, if you're asking, you know, whether there was an accounting manual in place at the time of the alleged fraud, if so, what's the process for reviewing this annual, annually? Who's in charge of it? And when was it last reviewed? In this example, you're asking four different questions at once. So again, it's important to break these down one by one, allow the individual the opportunity to respond, properly document that response, be an active listener and make sure that you're not just rolling into your next thought and, and you can provide insightful and useful questions to follow up with based on their response. And then lastly, focusing on nonverbal signs. These are very important and this also emphasizes the importance of conducting these interviews in person whenever possible, or at least via video, uh, we would not recommend conducting any sort of interview um, just via Teams without any kind of video on. Again, in most situations, these really should be conducted in person so that you can observe these nonverbal cues. Um, fidgeting, shifting, looking up or down when providing responses. For anybody who's seen Ocean, Ocean's Eleven, there's that scene between Matt Damon and George Clooney where they're talking about their responses and they say, if you look up, they know you're thinking of a response. If you look down, they think you're lying. So those are the types of things to be aware of and to be cognizant of when asking these questions and, and watching them respond. And I know we're kind of running up on our last 10 minutes here, so I'm gonna speed through this side, but standards of evidence should really be beyond a reasonable doubt, clear and convincing evidence, you know, in, in all cases possible, if you can receive actual supporting documentation to support these allegations, that is going to be the the, the strongest uh, piece of support that you can have. Again, this needs to be clear and convincing beyond a reasonable doubt, and the investigation itself needs to be conducted in good faith. So determining whether or not the employee knew the rules, whether they, whether they knew the rules when they were violating them, and what type of disciplinary action um, or just corrective action needs to be taken, and if there are mitigating circumstances around this issue. With that, I will turn things back over to Kristen for the reporting and communication. Thanks, Mac. Um, and we actually had a question come through um, that you might be able to answer um, about interviewing. Um, if someone admits to violating organizational policy or fraud, how would you get that person to put that admission in writing? Um, well, you know, if somebody is, is already admitting to violating organizational policy, um, I would hope that they would be willing to document that if they are making this admission. Um, it should also be communicated to them that based on this admission of, of guilt or a violation, that it is a requirement for management to document this process. Um, you know, again, I do think weight should be given to the fact that they are self-reporting, um, you know, again, especially if they didn't know of a company policy at the time 
or they were unaware that their actions were going to have this effect. Um, Self-reporting should be given consideration. Um, however, yes, if, if they are already coming to you, I would hope that they're already willing to, to document this just based on their, their admission. If they are not, uh, again, I would direct you to legal counsel to see what the appropriate mechanisms are to, to follow up on that and make sure that you corroborate that information. Um, and if necessary, you may just need to launch an investigation into the, 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 the issue itself um, and come to a determination as to whether or not a fraud or a violation of policy truly did occur. I think also sometimes the um, organization's whistleblower policy will have um, written into it an expectation that employees cooperate with internal investigations. Um, so maybe if someone is refusing to um, put something in writing, you could um, maybe point them to that policy as well. Uh, okay, so um, just we're gonna go through quickly the reporting section. Of, of our presentation. Um, I know we only have about seven minutes left, so we'll go through it um, rather quickly. So your report of investigation is ultimately the part of the investigation that others will see. So it's a critical part of the process. In general, overarching terms, the report should be clear, concise, and factual. So sort of think like executive summary um, when you're drafting the report. It should contain key information um, key information only. Um, but remember, of course, all of your details of the work that you've performed, your interview notes, summaries of documentations that you've reviewed um, should be maintained in your organization's case management system. And on the next slide, we'll go through specific elements that the report should contain. Um, so key dates, for example, the date that the allegation was reported, the date the investigation began and ended, um, also, a timeline of events, sometimes a visual timeline of um, the events uh, surrounding the allegation can be helpful to readers to digest that information. Um, the report should contain the allegation investigated, the investigation scope, uh, the individuals interviewed, um, although um, individual names should not be uh, named in the report. You typically... Um, a way to refer to individuals interviewed could be to call them the subject, um, the person who's the subject of the allegation, um, the reporter, the person who reported the allegation, um, or witness. Uh, the report should also um, contain a list of documents reviewed. And then, of course, the conclusion of the report, whether the allegation was substantiated or um, unsubstantiated. And on the next slide, um, we'll talk briefly about report distribution. Uh, in general, it's a um, best practice to make the report available um, within your case management system, if you have it, um, to your relevant audience, rather than distributing the report via email. And the reason for that is emails can be easily forwarded to someone um, who's not the intended recipient of the report. So keeping the reports within your case management system and granting access um, to appropriate users is a way to control who's getting um, that sensitive information. And then understand the needs of your stakeholders. Um, so whoever, for example, is determining um, the discipline of the case um, may need your formal report that we just discussed on the last slide, but other stakeholders might need to see information in a different format. Um, for example, the reporter, the person who reported um, 
the allegation um, may need to follow back up with that person to let them know that the investigation was concluded um, and whether it was substantiated, but that person may not need to know, for example, all of the details of your report. A board of directors, um, they may only want to know the details of certain types of cases, um, and they may, may want a summary of the rest of cases. And then regulators and funders may have specific requirements of the details that they want to see and the timeline in which they receive those details. And then moving to the next slide, um, following up and closing the case, uh, if necessary, um, have sort of a follow-up period with the reporting person, especially in cases where um, you're concerned about retaliation. And in general, whichever investigator um, investigated the case um, should be the same investigator following up with the reporter. Um, and then of course, the final step is to close the case in the case management system. And I think we have one more polling question. Have you ever written or read an investigative report? Yes, no, or unsure. All right, well, just to wrap up um, for, for today, I know we've only got a few minutes left, so I'm gonna speed through this. In terms of next steps to take, we recommend starting with a review of the policies procedures to ensure they're in accordance with best practice. Focus on that whistleblower policy and the investigation process that you currently have document, documented. Assess the current investigation and reporting process. Again, reporting focusing on the receipt of the initial complaint and the completion of the intake form, as well as the reporting of the actual investigation results to make sure that, that there's no enhancements that could be made, such as leveraging a cloud-based platform, um, improving upon the uh, user permissions related to the case management system and the sharing of reports, maybe even incorporating a practice like Kristen mentioned to, to grant user access to the case management system as opposed to sending through end user email because of um, the risks associated with forwarding that on or even somebody's email getting compromised and that sort of sensitive information being leaked. Confer with your legal counsel regarding any compliance requirements, especially if you're um, subject to e EU uh, regulations, or if you are working with a, a publicly traded company, and then identify a short list of qualified investigators to draw upon to be prepared. Once your allegations are received, you don't want to be scrambling to, to pull together the resources and identify investigators, especially in the event that something is particularly time sensitive. So with that, we do have a few resources on here. Um, and again, this, this slide deck will be posted online after this. So you, you'll have these actual links themselves um, just over some ACFE resources, some COSO resources, as well as some ISO. Um, so again, whether or not you follow a particular framework, all of this information is really helpful. And, and even making a, a blend of these frameworks within your own policy can be a best practice. Also just some additional GRF resources you can refer to uh, but with that, I, I think we addressed all of the questions that came in, um, and we are right at time, so that I think is is perfect timing, and I don't know if we'll have to uh, address anything else, but uh, again, please, we do have a minute or so left. If anybody has any questions, feel free to throw those into the chat or the Q&A function. Uh, again, please also feel free to, to reach out, connect with us on LinkedIn, shoot us an email. You have our email addresses there. If there's something um, that's that's top of mind for you or you just have any questions over the material we presented, 
Um, but with that, I just want to thank everybody for coming today. We really appreciate you being here and your support. Again, please feel free to reach out to us with any, any requests for information, any requests for additional content, feedback, um, input into your overall processes. We, we'd more than love to, to continue the conversation after this. But again, thank you all for being here and taking time out of your busy days to be with us. Thank you for listening to the GRF on the Co podcast. Visit our website at grfcpa.com for more information about the services we provide, the industries we serve, or to request a quote.